Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host this week, Jensen Beeler, and I am joined by the very hot, very sweaty, very tired, but our favorite man on the ground, Mr. Steve English, straight from Suzuka. Yeah, definitely hot and sweaty, Jim, but uh, definitely worth it as well. It was probably one of the best events I've gone to in the last couple of years. There was a really big, big race atmosphere at it, and it seemed like Suzuka was very much back to the fore again. Steve, I'm not going to lie to you. I am very jealous that you're out uh, in Japan this week. Suzuka is always a race that at the beginning of the year, I put it on my calendar and I say, I want to go to it. How do I get there? Let's figure it out. Let's get the schedules lined up. And every year I seem to find an excuse on why I don't go. And this year has been no different, but I am definitely jealous because this year's Suzuka eight hours, uh, I think is a cut above what it's been in the past, at least for the past I don't know, five, 10 years. It echoes almost the uh, the greatness from, from, you know, decades ago. Yeah, well, if you're looking for advice on how to get here, I wouldn't advise following my advice because last year I went to the wrong airport twice. This year I booked the wrong <laughs> flight. So don't listen to me for how to get here. But once you do get here, it is, it is special. And this year we had four really quick bikes. We had the Honda, the Kawasaki, the Yamaha, and the, and the Yoshimura Suzuki were all fast, even... The number 95 Suzuki was fast as well. So we had loads of good bikes at the front. We saw a full factory effort from HRC. Kawasaki brought pretty much the Kawasaki World Superbike team across. And uh, then Yamaha were just as strong as ever with Lowe's, Vandemark, Nakasuga. And uh, when you look at Yoshimura, one of the big surprises of the week was probably Bradley Ray coming in and being so quick on Bridgestone tires. Ray, of course, he won the opening two rounds of the year in the British Championship and uh, talked to Suzuka like a duck to water. So we had four bikes that were all relatively evenly matched. We had teams of riders that were all top-class riders, and it really was just uh, back to the glory days. Yeah, see, I want to back it up a little bit because I think you glanced over something that was really important, and it's something that we should impart to our listeners because this is a race that, uh, in its heyday, was the ultimate bragging rights for the Japanese manufacturers. This is probably the most important race on their calendar, certainly more important than any of the domestic series, than World Superbike. I think it probably rivals winning the MotoGP championship in terms of prestige and bragging rights amongst the the, the four Japanese OEMs. This this is the one they want to win. This is this is all the marbles. There's a ton of pride at stake. There's, there's probably some jobs at stake for some of the team members and engineers. Uh, this is a huge deal. And over the last few years, we've seen that importance kind of wane. And I think it's mostly because Honda hasn't been taking the race as seriously. And it's important to note that Suzuka is actually a track that's owned by Honda. So it's, it's literally their home turf. And that has opened up this opportunity for some other manufacturers to come in and start squeaking out victories, namely Yamaha, which has won this race the last three years in a row, which um, equals the best showing that a single team has done at Suzuka. No team has won more than three uh, Suzuki eight hours. So coming into the 2018 edition, uh, things changed a little bit, didn't they? Yeah, I think that uh, the one thing about Suzuki is I was talking to quite a few riders about it, and uh, they said that uh, every time they come into the pits at the end of a stint, they just they don't want to get back on a bike. But they look around, and there's 30 Japanese engineers. And for the rider, they also know there's 30 families that if this race doesn't go to plan, there could be 30 guys ahead of the job for the next, <laughs> for the next year. So they know the pressure. No pressure, right? Exactly. <laughs> like they know the pressure that they're under for this one race. 
And as you said, like in, in times gone by, this was as big as winning a 500 GP championship. That's why you used to have Gardner, Dewan, Schwantz, Rainey, all those guys all coming across to race in the eight hours. And uh, then round about the mid noughties, we, we saw that Suzuka was less and less important, but it's really picked up again over the last four or five years. If you think back to 2015, when Yamaha brought Bradley Smith and Paul Espagaro to this race, that was the that was the start of MotoGP riders coming back to race here. Casey Stoner raced here, and that and Kevin Schwantz as well. If you think back to five years ago, those incidents really did uh, bring this race back to the fore and make it something that fans were interested in again. And when you look at the TV coverage, there was the full eight hours shown in the UK and and in Europe. There was just uh, a lot of a lot of coverage everywhere. And if you think back to a few years ago. There was only a handful of European-based journalists that came across to Japan. This year, there was, off the top of my head, six MotoGP journalists here. So it does just show that uh, it is starting to, to really reclaim that position once again. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that. I know from my perspective, looking at the involvement of the OEMs and the machinery that they're bringing out and how that coincides with the production bikes they're using, I think, I mean, Honda brought out a full factory team. Not not a factory back team like Muwashi or TSR. They brought out the Honda factory HRC. I think they called it initially Team HRC, and then it got the title sponsorship of Red Bull. Um, you know, that's that's straight from from HRC HQ. Uh, the, for the first time in ten years, we've seen a factory bike with from them, and of course we have the factory uh, uh, Yamaha factory racing team coming in. Like you mentioned earlier, we have the Kawasaki, which is basically the world superbike team. Um, so it's really interesting to see the direct factory involvement coming back into the sport instead of maybe the the shadow involvement that we've had in the last few years or so. Yeah, and that's the that's the key thing. It was a shadow in the past, but Honda coming in with Team HRC really does just show how much they want to end Yamaha's winning streak. But basically, the the Fireblade, it was good, but it wasn't quite good enough. But that's also a team that missed out on having its lead rider in the form of Leon Camier. So maybe if Camier's here, he can overcome some of those issues as well, get it a little bit closer. But uh, overall for Honda, they exceeded expectations in finishing second. I don't think people thought that uh, they'd be able to, to beat the Kawasaki's. Now, admittedly, Kawasaki hit some trouble. They ran out of fuel. They had a crash. But uh, Honda... Honda just uh, kept plodding away at their pace and uh, were able to come away with second place. But we saw once again that uh, in terms of the outright lap pace from each of those bikes, there wasn't an awful lot in it. I think in qualifying there was round about three quarters of a second between the top four bikes. You know, And that's, uh, yeah, that's no, around no. a two minute, five second lap here at Suzuka. And uh, it did just show how close it has gone. You touched on a couple things there with the Honda team and I think we're going to get into that in a minute uh, with the show. Because there's, there's definitely a lot of factors that were going on in the Honda camp and, and in all the teams, really. Uh, Suzuki is certainly no <laughs> easy venture for a team. Before we do that, though, Steve, you had a chance to sit down with Michael Laverty and to talk a little bit about what it's like to come from other series to Suzuka, uh, the different, um, I don't know if disciplines is the right words, but there is definitely different riding styles that kind of manifest themselves in the domestic series, the international series, and in GP. And then obviously, um, there's a big thing to do with what tires you run uh, here in Japan. And 
he talks a bit about that, doesn't he? Yeah, it's always interesting to talk to Michael. He's obviously working in MotoGP as a pundit for, and commentator for BT Sport. He's still racing in the British Championship. He's obviously racing here at Suzuka as well. He's got uh, his brother Eugene and World Superbike's brother-in-law, Chaz Davis and World Superbike. So he's probably the only man with a hand in pretty much every major paddock in the world. So always interesting to get his thoughts and see what he has to say about uh, what's happening in each of those championships. And here at Suzuka, it was really interesting to talk to him about the tyres because we hear in the lead up to Suzuka, you can't win here unless you're on a Bridgestone. But I wanted to know why you couldn't win here if you weren't on a Bridgestone. And uh, Michael was talking in terms of just the riding style that the Bridgestone gives you. So the one thing that uh, every rider that uses the Bridgestone, they all say the same thing. It's all about the Bridgestone front tyre and it just gives a rider a lot of confidence. Once you release the brake, there isn't a big transition then as the bike loads up and uh, the riders are able just to build that confidence the whole way through it. Laverty was just talking in terms of here at Suzuka, he actually singled out a couple of different corners just where he couldn't get within eight, nine feet of where the Bridgestones were just because of how his Pirelli tires generate their grip. So it was interesting to talk to Michael just about that. Let's get right to it and play that audio for our listeners and when we come back, we'll get into the Suzuka race week. Michael Laverty joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast and Michael another weekend of working for you here at uh, the Suzuka 8 hours yeah a bit different this one all the way to Japan so it's been um, it's been two weeks of uh, with the test just before the Saxon Ring MotoGP I was out here for four or five days and then back for Saxon Ring and Brands Hatch and then back out here for a week for the race and uh, so yeah it's it's good you have to get acclimated to the temperature to the time zone change um, the test was good to learn the track it was my first ever visit to Suzuka so it's quite a technical circuit a lot to learn um, and then learn the team and, and how the Japanese culture is and how they work in the garage and everything understand all that so it's uh, it's been good it's been been a good experience so far and um, yeah my pace is okay but you know you have to be realistic when you come to this race because the top factory teams I can only relate it back to racing CRT against MotoGP bikes. You know the difference in equipment, in tires, and that there's a gulf in that in terms of performance. So you just got to be realistic of what you can achieve. So we've come here with a with a target really to race the the full time endurance uh, teams because that's all we can compete against. And we've been a match for most of them apart from the TSR team, but they generally would have been a an eight hour specific team in the past so when they come here they're pretty impressive they've done a lot of tests and they're on Bridgestone tires but the likes of GMT Yard's quite strong now on Bridgestones as well but uh, GMT Suzuki Endurance Honda Endurance those those are the teams were been as fast as or faster in most of the sessions so we just got to look and be realistic about it so yeah, it's been it's been a good experience you've done plenty of endurance racing before as well like you did Osterslaes and you've pulled yeah. your man at Le Mans as well but Suzuka's a bit different, isn't it? Definitely is, yeah. Like you said, you know, I've, I've a pretty good endurance record. Apart from the crash in Oschersleben when we were actually in second position, my teammate Brock Park crashed out of the race. But I've been in the podium in every other race of so Qatar 8 hours with Honda, Le Mans 24 hours, two podiums there. Um, but then coming to Suzuka, it is different. It is more with the factory efforts from Yamaha, from Kawasaki, from Honda. It, the the game is different over here, and the, the effort they put in, the weeks leading up, the amount of testing they do. So it is. It's two separate races, really. It's your endurance world championship race within a factory Jap- Japanese race, really. With um, well, there's plenty of European riders in those teams, but just the level they're at, um, the tires they've got, it it really makes you feel 
uh, how racing has evolved with the one tyre series in MotoGP and World Superbike and British Superbike it, it's leveled the playing field massively so when you're here and it's an open tyre thing the difference in the tyres is huge absolutely huge and it makes me hark back to my earlier days in BSB when I experienced a little bit of it before the control tyre came in but um, that being said I, I guess it's what adds a bit of a different dynamic especially in the 24 endurance races you know when tyres really come into it but like you say, Suzuka is a, a unique event, and um, yeah, hopefully one I'll get the opportunity to come back to and do again with a full, proper, dedicated effort. You know, with the right tires and and the right uh, program behind it, because I think we we can top ten this race if we do a good, consistent job. That's that's got to be our target, but we we know we can't really compete with the the top level teams. You've ridden the Bridgestone tires, obviously in MotoGP, it's pretty much the same tire here at Suzuka. How does it compare to the Ferrari? It, the the difference is the the degradation, you know, the drop off in lap time with a with a Pirelli significant. So the, the temperature hurts Pirelli. So whenever you're in Europe and you're not in such a hot temperature, that you can challenge a lot closer. But here in the in the heat and humidity, um, the Bridgestone you can just hammer it. The harder you work the front tire, the better it is. The rear tire you can spin it for the full 27 laps, one hour stint. And it doesn't seem to drop off. You can maintain such a strong pace, and that's the the difference. So we have a we have a drop off to contend with, but um, but we do spin a lot around here, and in the heat, then the front tires a little bit of a squashy, mushy feeling. It's not bad. It's you know the Pirelli have brought some good tires, but just knowing what the Bridgestones are, having rode them in MotoGP, and how hard you can push them in the heat, and the feedback you get from them, and and the steering, how they steer. They're a rigid tire, but how they steer when you're spinning the bike. It's so impressive, you know. That I've seen some pictures, actually, some that you've taken around the big left Dunlop curve, and the guys on Bridgestone tires are spinning, and they're close to the grass. And I'm just talking to Christian about it this morning. And I was like, we're three meters wider. I've never got back to that grass yet, no matter what I do. It just the bike won't turn while spinning like that, the way a Bridgestone tire will. So it's it just it's a different riding style, and you you know. So like I said at the start, you gotta be realistic about what you can achieve. So you know you can't really race those guys on the Bridgestone tires, and that's just that's the reality of it and I think Pirelli understand that as well they've put a good effort in they've worked hard with Morawaki actually at the, Mor the test the Morawaki team was are fairly similar pace to us but they seem they tested again and they seem to have found a little bit this weekend Keo and uh, Yuki Takahashi they been a little bit faster than myself and Christian but at the test we were fairly similar in lap time so um, yeah we haven't improved as much as we'd like to guess just when you look at the Pirelli tyres, which tyres did they actually bring here? Because obviously in Worlds and BSB, Pirelli have brought a raft of new tyres through the last year. We don't quite have that latest generation from World Superbike, the the bigger uh, construction rear tyre, but um, the, they are specific for this temperature, for the heat. Uh, the codes are something I've never run before that, that I've never heard of, them, but the feeling's quite similar to be honest, so the, the feeling translates, but it's a, it's got a harder uh, compound uh, rubber for, for the duration and um, we may get to try the wet tyres as well which I think are quite similar to the European ones which apparently work quite good in the heat over here so um, I think the rain tyres aren't too big a, a difference in, in terms of performance but that remains to be seen. One part of the endurance racing scene is obviously working with your teammates, obviously yourself and Christian are teammates in BSB as well but it's a bit different this weekend Myself and Christian worked well as teammates. You know, we done the Le Mans 24 hour together, and we had we had a really good race there. Stuck it on the podium, and good consistent pace, and no mistakes. And that's the key for this one. But in terms of bike setup, we like a very similar kind of setup with the bike. We're, you know, the direction we both go in seems to work for 
both of us will have to compromise slightly but um, but yeah it's not a big issue and yeah, looking forward to working with Christian again he's a good endurance teammate because he's probably one of the fittest guys around he works really hard so you know he's not going to fatigue and if we need to throw an extra session his way he'll do it with a smile on his face <laughs> throw him an extra couple you get, you get, yeah. <laughs> once the race starts you get paid here so uh, just looking at the uh, BSB season then in general just uh, how's it going for you so far uh, to be honest it's been a little bit underwhelming in some ways I I think we're, we're, we're getting the best out of our package um, for the most part We've, I've only had one podium in the rain uh, that was at Brands Hatch Indy I've not really had the speed to, to truly challenge for a podium uh, maybe Knock Hill I was, I was there finished 5th and 6th on the day but just missing that last little bit in a couple of areas and that, that just hurt us so we need to find something with a motorbike to challenge the Kawasaki and Ducati on a, on a on a regular basis but if you look at superbike racing worldwide the Kawasaki and Ducati and world superbikes are a step above and in BSB although the rules do a good job of leveling the playing field they do have a little bit of a performance edge on us but as a team we're working hard to try and find a little bit more out of the BMW package and it is good it's it's pretty much there but we need the track and everything to kind of align for us to say we're going to win a race but so what we what we're doing at the minute is being as consistent and as strong as we can and it's kept us I think we're sixth and seventh or seventh and eighth in the championship myself and Christian that both of us are on identical lap times at almost every track we go to you know so many times we look at the sectors and we're on the same tenth so we both feel we're getting the, getting the most out of the bike and the package as it is um, but we need to keep working to, to move it forward and hope we can stick a few podiums in as the year goes on so it's um yeah it's tough BSB is not easy and the you know the level's high and um, yeah we just keep keep plugging away at it really you're pretty much the only rider, Michael, in the world that's got a hand in every paddock. You're racing here at Suzuka, BSB, obviously Eugene and Chaz and World Superbikes, and then your punditry work in MotoGP. How do you look at Worlds and uh, MotoGP at the moment? Yeah, I enjoy being in the, those paddocks. Uh, the only I've only been to Donington and Bruno for World Superbike, and that was just a last-minute call-up by Chaz to turn up at Bruno and they were struggling at that time just to try and help identify the issues so I enjoy that side of, of the the spotting side of the coach side and just going in and adding something to the garage um, but looking at looking at World Superbikes Johnny's been impressively strong all year uh, they've really got the Kawasaki dialed and he's on top of his game um, Ducati fell a little bit to the wayside but they seem to have regrouped lately and putting in a good challenge Eugene's been really impressive the last few rounds you know they've worked hard with the Aprilia um, they complained a lot in the early uh, last season especially and then they got it better and they've kept working and finally made this new tyre new generation tyre work for them and he's he's put in a couple of podiums so yeah it's nice to see that there's more bikes challenging with the Yamahas this year those couple of wins for Alex and Mark, Michael van der Mark they're looking a lot more like they're at the match so it's good for World Superbike if we can do a little bit the way BSB has and make more more bikes race winners there's still some work to do with the BMW and World Superbikes to, to get it up to that level and and the private teams, you know, aren't quite there, and it would be nice to see a Suzuki effort back in World Superbike. Because um, you know, you look at MotoGP and across the board, everything apart from a, an Aprilia and a KTM are are right on the money. The those two manufacturers still need to put in a, a bit of. That's the hardest bit. They've got to spend a lot of money now to get that last few tenths to to be challenging for podiums. But it, it's great when you look at the the Yamaha, the Honda, uh, Ducati, and Suzuki. They're all. All capable of, of winning races when, when things align for them, but it's it's good. You just have to watch that Aston MotoGP race back and see the, how close the class is, and the racing's really really come to to the forefront in the last 
the last couple of years since I think a lot of it's funding so Dorna have propped up the teams towards the back end of the grid and now they, every team in there has got a year old or two year old factory bike so the equipment the whole way through the field is is at a high level and it means um, everyone's within a second and a half so even you know Scott Redding was what 15 16 seconds down in 14th was it at Assen and you know he impressive in terms of the performance you know how close it all is and it makes the racing really good at the front but Mark Marquez is just something else at the moment just he can always find a little bit more he is he is the complete rider at, at the moment and, and doing a doing a great job so it, it hopefully doesn't run away with the championship um, but you know Rossi's still there points wise he, he what you know people always say you know he, he may be past it but he still the second best rider in the world at the minute in terms of points he's always there consistently there and uh, and and getting the best out of that yamaha but um it's it's some good racing worldwide at the moment you've got uh, to go and earn your money now in a minute so we only got time for one more question but jeremy mcwilliams has said pretty much consistently that uh, put johnny onto a competitive bike in peter walk yeah Jeremy McWilliams has said pretty much consistently you put Johnny onto a competitive bike in MotoGP he'd be able to bring the fight to Mark Marquez and obviously Jeremy's got uh, some national pride there in Johnny but you've been out on track with Johnny this weekend you've seen him in Worlds you've seen Mark do you think is it a valid statement? Well I think Jeremy's statement was maybe the fastest rider in the world but for sure I'd put him top five it's you know Mark is I think Mark has something for everybody he just very gifted, very driven. Johnny's got those both attributes as well, but I, I just watch Mark and I th- think he's doing something that I've never seen done before. Even you know Casey Stoner was up there, bef- in my opinion, and one of the fastest riders in the world. But Mark's Mark's right there. So, but um, in terms of Johnny Ray's performance, yeah, I always wished he'd, he'd have got that shot in MotoGP on a factory bike. But there's no point in him coming here unless he was going to get that right equipment and the time to to develop. And unfortunately. He's, um, it's a clever move in his part career-wise, you know, he's with a good team and on a race-winning package, so he's going to be another World Superbike Champion this year, you'd imagine, and um, and he's put himself in a position to fight for two more titles, so a bit like Car- the Card Fogarty area, where he never really got that right opportunity to go to, to, to 500 GP, and Johnny's the same. If that Repsol Honda ride had to come his way instead of going Lorenzo's way, then I think he should have, he could have very well moved and, and shown us all what he's capable of. But um, yeah, no question in my mind, he's got that ability. He's got that that raw speed. That you know, the lap time he done here yesterday, two five one, and you look at Paul Espargaro at the time on a factory Yamaha six uh, zero was the best ever seen before. To take point nine off it is just unreal. It's unheard of. It, he just proves again and again he's consistently very very strong, very very rounded rider, and level headed. And um, he always had that natural raw speed from from when he was a kid. So I think if you'd have thrown thrown him into MotoGP, he would have swam rather than sunk. He, you know, he he, he got a seventh and an eighth, was it, when he'd done those couple of reps all Honda rides? Just unfortunately, he never got that opportunity to get a full factory contract over two years with a season's worth of pre-season testing, uh, you know, building and, and learning and understanding the tires and the bikes. But um, yeah, I'd agree with Jeremy. He's deserves to be in that top five for sure. Okay, thanks for joining us, Michael. Cheers. All right. Yeah. Steve, interesting stuff there. Thank you for uh, sitting down with Michael and, and having a chat about that. Uh, it's certainly interesting to get the rider's perspective and and knowing uh, his background and the different series that he's raced in. I think it really means a lot. I think <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's a bike he hasn't ridden and it'd be tough to come up with it. Uh, he has such a, 
a wide diversity of knowledge and, and expertise. Yeah, and as Michael said during that interview as well, here at Suzuka, it feels almost like he's back to his CRT days because he wasn't able to have the same performance as some of the front runners and you're just racing a race within yourself. And uh, for Laverty, it was uh, a pretty pretty difficult Suzuki eight hours. The team had a penalty at the start of the race and uh, they ended up finishing in the top 15. So they did a really good job with all things considered, including that penalty. Yeah. Uh, coming into the race week, Steve, I mean, I know you're a betting man. You and I have a little side bets every now and then. Uh, who was your money on? Was it was it Yamaha to, to take a, a fourth win in a row? Was it Kawasaki? Did you think Honda? Who's, who was your favorite? Well, for me, the way I looked at it was Kawasaki is the best superbike on the planet. We see that in every championship, whether it's World Superbikes, British Championship. And the, the Kawasaki is it was always going to be fast here at Suzuka, but you're the man to beat until you're beaten. And Yamaha haven't been beaten for three years, so they, they, they should start as the favourite for the race, and they rightly or wrongly felt uh, they were a little bit... Uh, they were a little bit annoyed at the fact that Kawasaki were coming in to play the underdog card. But uh, Yamaha were certainly the team to beat until someone came in and actually beat them. So Yamaha would have started the race as the favourite for me, but uh, the pace of Kawasaki wasn't a surprise to anyone really. Uh, it was a surprise to me, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I think I was like you. You come in, Yamaha, they've had that program in place for, for the last three years. They've had a lot of time to develop that bike. They've they've been there and they've done the thing, and it's it's a... It's a fine working piece of clockwork that they have there now. It's a little bit harder to come in um, and start from scratch, like like with the Honda team. I was really impressed with the level that Honda was bringing. But it's one thing to supply some parts and to help some teams that have already been established. It's a whole other thing to create your own Team HRC, bring in your top riders, and, and expect to be quick out of the gate. Kawasaki's been strong, though, uh, at Suzuka. They've been on the podium, what was it, the last two years? So... Uh, to see, to know that and coming into it and then see what they're bringing with Ray, I guess I shouldn't be that surprised, but they were off my radar. I, I have to say I was pleasantly, um, I keep using the word surprise, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the pace that that they had, uh, Liam uh, was no slouch, Jonathan, I mean, we know the level he's at in, in Superbike, it's it's unreal. Haslam, we kind of miss it here in the U.S. because we don't get as much BSB, but obviously, you know, a big talent over there. We'll see him in the World Superbike paddock for next year alongside Jonathan Ray. Um, so, yeah, I think after that first session turned laps, I was like, yeah, game on, Team Green. Okay, here we go. Well, it's worth remembering that Kawasaki spent 16 days testing here at Suzuka. They also had, uh, I think, a four-day test at Atopolis. So they've spent 20 days testing this specific bike. And you, you touched on it at the start of the show, Gents, whenever you said that Suzuka is the only race that matters to these Japanese manufacturers, they race the Japanese Superbike Championship just to get ready for this round. Nobody cares who wins the Japanese Superbike Championship. They care about who wins the eight hours. So Kawasaki have spent all of their resources on their Japanese Superbike project and Suzuka just to get ready for this race. Pararibo, Jonathan Ray's crew chief in World Superbikes, he's been over and back to Japan pretty much since March. I think... Uh, the first time he came over was just after the Buriram World Superbike round. And uh, basically since then, he's been in Europe one week, Japan the next, just getting everything ready for this. And when you talk to Reba, it was interesting just to see how invested he was in the success of this project as well. Because 
he's uh, this was the first project that he's really taken the lead on all of the technical details on the bike. He was the one that was the liaison point between Japan and Europe, and uh, he was really the key for this project. So he wants to make it work. Jonathan Ray wants to make it work. You put Leon Haslam on the bike. Haslam's a three-time winner at Suzuka, podium man the last two years for Kawasaki. It was a it was a proper team effort from Team Green, and uh, they had the right package, the right riders, and uh, their speed was something we hadn't seen here before. You know, Jonathan Ray on on uh, Saturday, I'm sorry, Friday qualifying, he took nine tenths of a second off the unofficial lap record. So it does just show the jump that they were able to make. It's quite reminiscent if you look at the TT when riders and teams just suddenly jump, you know, one, two miles an hour year on year. That's what Kawasaki did this year, but they just uh, weren't able to make it work for the full eight hours. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point to make. And I was going to kind of leave it for later in the show, but maybe it's worth talking about it now because from from my perspective, the practice week lap times and the qualifying lap times don't really seem to mean a lot. And because it is endurance racing, because we're talking about an eight-hour race or if you go into um, the FIM Endurance World Championship a little bit deeper, you have 24-hour races. Uh, consistency counts for so much on top of speed, and, and you have to have both those components to do well. I was really curious, especially after qualifying, uh, the qualifying result where, where Kawasaki was on pole, just to be like, okay, well, how... How sustainable are those lap times? What is a race pace really going to look like? What is the fuel strategy really going to look like? Because that's one of the things we know about with the Yamaha R1 with the cross-plane crank. It guzzles a lot of fuel. That's a uh, an issue that's endemic to that style of motor that you're just not going to get around. And I think when we saw during the race, we saw the Honda. Honda was sipping on fuel in a lot of cases and seemed to have a, a strategy in place where, yeah, maybe the absolute lap time wasn't there but the efficiency could make up for it. There was some factors that came along uh, along the way that maybe prove or disprove that, but it's not just about putting in a maximum time, is it? Yeah, the one thing about it is, Alex Lowe's actually said it best on Saturday after Kawasaki had put the bike on pole and uh, you know Yamaha were third on the grid and everyone was wondering, like, what, what's going on at Yamaha? Like, how do they feel about that? And uh, Lowe's just said, you know, we spend... All the days testing here, trying to get as quick as we can for one lap. We're all interested in what we can do in terms of what's our outright pace. But it's an eight-hour race. It's not about being fast for one lap. It's about being fast for 27 laps eight times. You've got to be able to do eight stints. And you've got to be able to be as quick as you can at, uh, at the end of eight hours. And uh, when you look at the Yamahas, if uh, you were to break down the race, it was quite interesting because at the start of each stint, the Yamaha worked really well to to use its tyres and it would close the gaps to the Kawasaki's. As we came into the final two, three laps of a stint, we'd sometimes see the Kawasaki stretch that lead again. And uh, then in terms of the fueling, as you said, Jensen, that was one of the key things for every Suzuka 8 hours. This year was a little bit different because strategy changed by the weather, the safety cars. I think there was an hour and a half of safety cars. We had two major downpours. Honda made two stops less than Yamaha. That saves you probably a minute fifty, maybe two minutes. So you know, there's a, a lot of factors that go into into a race whenever the weather changes like that. But uh, I thought overall, um, we definitely saw that Kawasaki had the outright pace, Yamaha had the consistent pace, and Honda just had their own pace. And they made the, they waited for the race to come to them. 
I thought at one stage that uh, Honda had made a big mistake strategy-wise. It ended up being a godsend for them. So it's like anything else in an eight-hour race. You need to be as consistent as you can, but you also need the cards to fall your way. Steve, talk to me a little bit about the the bike setup because that's another big thing with endurance racing in general where you have uh, Suzuka, typically a three-man team, and some teams are running two-person teams. Uh, obviously, uh, Yamaha is the one that interests me the most because you have Vandermark and Lowe's that are so kind of different in size and stature and riding style and trying to find uh, a balance point between them. Um, that That's a tough a tough thing to do. Did you get a chance to talk to any of the riders about the setup choices and, and the the ergonomic choices that they're having to make? Yeah, for Yamaha, it's not a difficult decision to make. You set the bike up for Nakasuga and everyone just uh, reacts to it. And uh, <laughs> the big problem is Lowe's and Nakasuga are, they're their typical rider size. They're probably five foot eight. You know, they're not, you know, they're not massive guys. Michael Vandermark is, he's taller than me. He's probably your height, Jensen. You know, he's six one. He's, you know, he's a big guy and he has to fit onto a bike that's basically designed for guys that are, you know, five inches shorter than him. So for Vandermark, it's always a struggle to actually fit onto the bike. Now, the one thing that uh, Vandermark has said about it is he, he can't set a fast lap time when he's not comfortable on the bike, but he can set consistent lap times. So in qualifying, if there had been the shootout, the weather ended up meaning that we didn't have the traditional uh, Suzuka top 10 shootout where everyone goes out one lap and uh, it's up to you to pick your two riders to use for that session. The fastest lap of uh, either rider then sets the grid positions. We didn't end up having that this year. So Yamaha ended up, because Nakasuga was injured, they made some changes to the settings of the bike. They lengthened uh, the, the push the bars back to give um, Vandermark a little bit more space. They made a few other changes to it. But it was a big departure from the settings that they've used all the way through testing and also through the race weekend. So it took them time to adapt to that. And in qualifying in particular, you could see Vandermark was very comfortable on the bike straight away, but uh, Lowe's was wheeling in a lot of places. It took Yamaha took Yamaha a bit of time on, on Saturday night to find the right solutions for the bike. But uh, when you talk to each of the riders, it's about finding that compromise in terms of the ergonomics of the bike. But uh, for a taller rider like Vandermark, he's the one that has to make the big compromise and, uh, you know, when they went to a two-bike team at Yamaha, they made the changes to try and help him. But uh, it's always interesting just to go up and down the pit lane to see who the bike gets set up for at each of the individual teams. Jonathan Murray was quite interesting. Whenever I asked him about Kawasaki and their system, he said that uh, basically Pereira tries to get the bike set up for all the riders. But uh, he's got a lot of confidence that Jonathan Ray is able to adapt to pretty much any settings so he'll try and make it where it's a little bit more suited to the other riders and then it's up to Ray to try and uh, just uh, get the most from that setting. Is there any indication of, of how different of a setup that would work for or be an ideal setup for Johnny Ray versus Ulyan Haslam or is it um, well, too close to call? In, in terms of the ergonomics for those riders it wouldn't be too different in terms of what they want from the bike it would be quite different but in terms of the only rider I actually asked specifically about what difference it makes whenever they're on a, a Suzuka bike or they're on their own bike was I talked to Vandermark about it and uh, I asked him just uh, how big of a difference it did make and he said that last year Yamaha brought the Suzuka bike out to Portmao for a test and uh, it was just to compare to the World Superbike machine and uh, he said that uh, the 
just took it straight out of the crate as it was at Suzuka. Van der Mark went out and set a lap time and uh, came back into the pits and then the team said, okay, we'll make some changes to the bike. We'll make it a little bit better for you. So they made the tank a little bit longer. They pushed the bars out and Van der Mark went a second a lap faster. So it shows the kind of compromise that he's having to make in terms of his, his one lap pace. But as, as we saw during the race, his consistency didn't really get affected. Whether you look at uh, the last couple of years on the Honda, last year on the Yamaha or this year, he was always able to find that consistent pace. So it's always just interesting to see how each of the riders have to do that. No, it's very interesting. I've had a couple conversations with uh, Jason Pridmore about the changes in riding style that he would have to do when he used to do uh, endurance racing. And it, it's an interesting thing to, to hear how they lay their body on the tank differently or how they support their weight differently, especially under braking and uh, moving around the bike, because it's, it is all about a minimalization of effort, especially when you're talking about, a, I mean, eight hours is short compared to what a 24 hour at like the Bull Door or Le Mans is going to be where it really stacks up against you. But even under eight hours, um, you know, you're talking about lap times that aren't necessarily getting affected by a chassis setup, but on leg fatigue, or if you have a stiff neck, or if you're getting an arm pump, or all these sort of physical ailments that you have, you know, a finite amount of time in the pits to try and remedy or overcome before you're back on the bike again. It's it's a tough hurdle to to jump. Yeah, definitely, and uh, it's it that's what makes endurance racing what it is. And uh, when you talk to any of the riders, that's pretty much the one thing that they say the whole time is that. You know, it is what it is in endurance racing and uh, you've just got to make the best out of whatever situation you have. And, and it does take time to adapt to it, the different riding styles. And uh, in the lead up to the race, I was asking Jonathan Ray just about whether or not uh, he'd be at a disadvantage by not testing. Uh, previously, he had only done one test. He came here after the Mizano World Superbike Round and uh, did a three day test and then came for the race. And uh, he said that... Uh, you know, in years gone by, whenever he raced for Honda, he'd come out and he'd do 12 days of testing or whatever it was, 10 days of testing, and uh, he'd uh, get himself confused between a World Superbike machine and the endurance machine. And uh, this year, there was no real issues like that. He just he did his, his Superbike round at Mizano, came here, he's in Suzuka mode, then there's a, a, a test as well in Portimao in the middle of August. So he'll manage to get himself back into World Superbike mode before the first round back after the summer break. All right, Steve. Well, I wanted to get to qualifying and talk to you about that. But before we do, you had a chance to sit down with the man himself, Mr. Johnny Ray, and and discuss what's been going on with, with Kawasaki and their Suzuka efforts. So maybe we should give that a listen and then come back to, to our discussion. Yeah, big race weekend, and uh, obviously it wasn't mean for you just to have had three and a half years with the team and then get a chance like this. Yeah, for me it's just perfect timing, because um, I mean I had the opportunity to come in 2015, and um, everything wasn't right, I mean I didn't, uh, didn't seem like it was a full effort, the, they wanted me to be the European rider and a two-rider Japanese team, and I've been here before and I understand what it takes to win and how much um, and after winning in 2012 I wasn't interested to come back just to win and it seemed like over the last few years the mentality's changed a little bit inside Kawasaki as well the investments gone up I mean it's still the SBK programs the priority but the Suzuki Ira project's been really um, <coughs> gathering some momentum and with 
with the strategy now to use two top European riders and along with their Japanese factory riders and coupled with the schedule and sort of like it meant that you know I could test after the last um, after my last superbike race directly into the race weekend at Suzuka and then have another superbike test to reaccustom before a superbike race it was absolutely perfect just means that I mean this point of the season has been absolutely chaotic for me since I think Donington we've gone what week on week off now from pretty much Donington or before Donington so it's been very very busy but um, yeah just nice to come back in the perfect kind of conditions something to her about his involvement in the program as well and obviously when you go into the garage you see a lot of faces from KRT it shows just how yeah. much Kawasaki I mean that was not that I have um, massive status or it's my team, but it was certain conditions I wanted before I'd even come. And it was I wanted uh, familiarity with with Perry and Yuri in there. Um, I mean, it's, it's sometimes daunting just coming from something that really works in the World Championship to a team that you've never worked with before. So um, that was one of the, one of the things, um, one of the main things in the contract that I wanted. I came here and in the past with other teams and the communication was terrible. I mean, most of the team never spoke any English and um, I was always getting on the bike, really un not understanding what was changes were or the strategies were. So, you know, having Perry there and he's, I mean, he's the uh, crew chief for the project along with Kurokawa and um, that's really nice. And uh, he feels good too. He's been here, he's been at every test since March. Directly after Bury Ramy came here with Leon and uh, Watanabe, so and he's done a Watanabe official like a solo test at Autopolis as well. So he's it's, it's a big deal for him as well, and he's he's not in a big contract to come here. It's something he wants to do, and he's uh, I mean Kawasaki value him really highly. And just looking at Leon as well being his teammate for this, like obviously yeah. Leon's being confirmed for next year as well in KRT. But yeah. for an event like this, what does it mean to have someone like him beside you? Like last year, I think he did five, six hours during the race. Leon's like a bull terrier, you know, he never gives up. And uh, I have a long friendship with Leon since back in the BSB days where we'd like bump bars together, but we were like mates. And that's really, really cool to my be. I mean, eight are your teammates, like, he's your, he's your friend, you know, you want him to do well. You know, it's um, you know you see in other teams like even Yamaha, Vandermark, and Lowe's are rivals in the race weekend, and they can talk whack about each other behind each other's back. But then this weekend they're like best mates because they need the that's the camaraderie that endurance racing brings, and it's like no different that if you know Tom Sykes be my teammate for this event, it's Leon, and uh, it just so happens that actually away from the track we get we really get along, so it's perfect. I mean, even before Super Bowl, we were talking. I was trying to give him some help in a sector that you know I've been pretty good in, and he was trying to give me some help in a sector that I was struggling in as well. So it's really, really, really nice, and to have two English-speaking riders as well with the bike developments, really good. And he's he's won three eight hours now, um, so he's got a lot of experience here. So it's really, really nice. When I was talking to Perry as well, he was saying basically the bike has been turned upside down from last year, a lot more similar to the world spec compared to what they ran here in the past. How different does it feel compared to what you ride week in, week out? Uh, it's a huge difference, basically mostly because of the tyres, it's completely different characters. So to learn that in only a few tests, is, uh, or like one test, it's really hard. And then, um, 
Electronically, it's very similar. Um, although the electronics behave differently because of the tire. Uh, Suspension-wise, it's the same, same spec. And um, chassis-wise, it's similar. We use some different chassis components in the linkage area. And, but um, from a bike position, has to be quite different because of the tires so we're finding that at the front of the bike is much um, the head pipe position is really different and um, just to make the Bridgestone front work in a different because it works in a different way to Pirelli and aside from that um, yeah there's actually quite a lot of the differences but the biggest difference is the tire I mean that's what, that's what brings the, the biggest difference on any bike you said a couple of times I've only done one test he did one day on the bike then and then yesterday in the qualifying session went break the lap record. It's something that nobody thought we'd see down into the low 205s on a race tyre. No, I didn't even think I'd see that in a queue to be honest. And um, I'm happy I did it yesterday because today now the rubber's gone. Uh, and I can't, yeah, I can't, uh, I can see it being very difficult to do 205s today, but... Um, I don't know, it's just a good lap. I mean, I got no traffic. It's the biggest thing here is traffic. I haven't done many laps this weekend because even up until now that Kazuma has been just a little bit off me and Leon's pace. So he put focused on doing a long run to find some speed. Um, and that took a, a lot of time away in the middle of a race weekend. So I think I've, I don't know how many chronos I've done. Not many, probably only eight flying laps. Uh, I did another seven in the, the night session last night, so not many laps at all. Is that one of the biggest adjustments for you? Like in a world's weekend, you're always trying to get one race run done. Yeah, but I did a race run on the test a few weeks ago, and you can't here, you can because it's um, so much traffic, so nothing's going to be perfect, and it's an eight-hour race. You know, in both sort of bikes, you're finding the last tenth at different points of the race. You know, trying to be strong at the end of the race, trying to be strong in the middle of the race as the fuel load goes down, kind of understand everything. But here it's kind of, you just need to be happy with the bike. You're never going to make a perfect bike for three riders. I mean, I, I'm probably um, the most adaptable rider. So I uh, jumped on the bike and position-wise, I was happy with what they settled on in the test before. And then together we just worked trying to give the same comment. When we'd give the same comments, then we would make a change. But I always told Perry not to, Try not to filter it down my way because I'd prefer that the other two would be happier with the setup so that I, I would and I would compromise. Perro says that's one of the big strengths for you is just basically you can make any change to the bike within four or five laps you find a way to, to yeah. make the time. Obviously that's one of the keys here to do. Definitely and um, I mean one of the things is sometimes I'm complaining about the bike but I'm we're not sure what to do and Perry can see on data that I'm riding in a different way so He'll set the bike up in a way that forces me to ride in a different way and automatically I get it and then the problems are gone. So um, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's years of been riding uncompetitive machinery or uh, you know, there's, there's times when you're struggling, you kind of learn that, how to extract the best from yourself. I mean, for years at Honda, I had the best advice from you know, guys like Peter Bradles or um, Chris Pike when I would be moaning about the bike and they would say listen this is what we have you know go into a race run and try and find time yourself and that would be where I'd find time 
and I kind of stuck to that a little bit. Even now when the bike's pretty perfect, I'm always trying to understand what I can do differently on the bike during the race weekend. Perro says that from 2014 to now, that it's two Johnnies. Do you, what do you think is the biggest difference you've made since then? Probably um, the biggest difference, obviously, from lifestyle point of view is having a family, having kids. And I think that I was never the... You know, if I looked in the mirror in 2014, I probably seen I wasn't really. I was the same guy as a rider, but away like away from the track, I was always working hard to try and find my dream, you know, and maybe a little bit angry with things. And then as soon as success started coming my way, I was more a lot more laid back and easy, and what will be will be because I kind of ticked the box. So I don't put as much pressure on myself now as I used to. Um, but I think that's because I feel like I've achieved what I wanted to do, really. And um, but I don't know. I like working. You can have a fast rider and a fast bike and a fast team and a, good, a really good, well-organized team. But unless you have all three together, you, you can't really make the last difference. Just one minute, Tony. Uh, how long you need? 15 minutes because I need to speak with him after. Uh, and then half past I have a rider briefing. Just, just, just hear one thing. I'll only start a couple more questions there, Johnny. Um, obviously, just looking at worlds as well. Just what you've been able to achieve this year, last year, breaking the points record, wins in the season. What's what's left to achieve? Just winning. Trying to win. Honestly, I, I, it's weird. I don't. Um, I used to feel pressure backing up what I'm doing, and um, now it's just because I'm more laid back about it. It's just happening more easy instead of really looking for it to happen. And um, I just have fun now. Of course, I want to win, but I realise that my days are going to be numbered at some point. Someone's going to, a faster guy's going to come. A new kid in the block's going to arrive. Uh, a manufacturer's going to step up that's going to be stronger and um, so just trying to enjoy things I mean I have so much fun with these guys it's not normal like every week race weekend like I'd, I'd hate knowing what I have now I'd hate to compete against that because um, it's just it's so good I know that if I had um, any issues with any other rider or any issues in the world with somebody or someone or something that every single person in my corner would like be fighting for me you know what I mean and I've never ever I never had that until you know, these last few years so it's super cool feeling and um, I'm just sometimes I get worried about you know losing that feeling because sometimes like uh, I don't know if you talk it wasn't you it was maybe Jake last night talking about you know guys that they're very good to find the limit but then if they cross the limit that can be the defining moment and then they, they've lost that riding aura you know what I mean that, that spot sweet spot so I fear that sometimes you know like a losing confidence but um, an injury of course that's something I want to steer clear of but there's loads left to achieve trying to win you know it's fucking hard to win a race like even I've won a lot, but it's hard. You know, I'm not riding 
know, around there, like waving at the fans. It's brutally hard, and not more so than the last races in Misano. So it's, um, it doesn't get easier. So I always have to try and step up myself. But is Suzuka one of those events where you're able to show the level of worlds as well? Because a lot of the time you hear the comparisons to GP. Last year, we Jack Miller came across the race here. You've got Nakagami. You always have a couple of MotoGP riders, whether it was Paulus Bagaro a few years ago, Bradley Smith. Whenever they come to race a bike like this, it's a bike that the superbike riders don't know, tires the superbike riders don't know, but a MotoGP rider doesn't come in and... No, for me, they can send the best riders from MotoGP and it's it's just common ground, do you know what I mean? And a bike's a bike. But, I mean, we have enough... My Twitter line blew up last night about comparisons again since the lap time in MotoGP. And it's funny because it's a motorbike with two wheels and clever guys understand it quite fast and are able to make it go fast. And you have, sometimes you have like my fans or superbike guys flex their guns and then you have the MotoGP guys like you know, justifying why this should happen. And it's really, it's, it's cool to see that there's debate about it, but it's, good riders are good riders. I mean, it's, um, they can all make it work, it's, but it is very, it's, it's not as simple as me rolling up here with my KRT bike. This bike is completely different. It's an endurance spec bike with a different engine, uh, different tires, different behavior, and um, and yes, yeah, so it's it's difficult for me, but it's um, I mean, good riders, good ride. I have no doubt that you know the top motor like top motor GP riders could come here and be fast. I have no doubt that top super bike riders could go to motor GP and be very fast. So it's. Um, it's all about the bike you're on, the, the team you're with, and the conditions you go on. I was talking to Reba and I asked him if he was offered any rider in the world who he'd take. And he said he'd turn down Marquez, he'd turn down anyone else just to stay where he is. What does that mean to you? Because he's, he's a guy that you well, respect he, a lot. He turned down two top MotoGP riders this year to go to next year to stay with me. And it makes me so proud. I mean, he, he told me in Misano, laughing and very joking and proud of himself. Uh, who had just been on the phone and um, it, yeah it makes me feel good but also I mean it should make him feel good that uh, that I was in discussions with other MotoGP teams for next year and uh, he was one of the first stipulations that I told I mean I'd introduced him to some people as well in the case that he would move so um, it's a good package we get each other and it works that's yeah. perfect thanks Jack. thank you interesting stuff from from johnny steve um nice work in an interview with him it's always interesting to hear his insights one of the things that that he said that really stirred my attention was the fact that he stipulated that a good chunk of his world superbike team come with him especially his uh crew chief uh Pereira. and obviously that was something that worked out quite well for him because we saw him and kawasaki go into the qualifying session and absolutely destroy things. Yeah, as Johnny said, one of the key things for him, like he didn't want to lay down the law, but uh, he knew there were certain things that he'd want to have involved or certain people he'd want to have involved with the team, Pereira being one. He was able to bring around a mechanic as well. Marcel Dwinker was here at Suzuka as well. So there really was a lot of the KRT squad here and uh, it, it did make a big difference for the team. We saw them make a, a huge step forward compared to the last couple of years for Team Green, even though Team Green being on the podium the last two years with Leon Haslam, they hadn't been able to get to the the kind of speeds that we've seen so uh, in the 2018 race, and uh, 
their strides were made just by the work that went into whether it was developing the bike, whether it was looking at the strategies, whether it was looking at the riders, whether it was looking at the crew, all of those things came together and uh, made a massive difference. Even here this weekend, I saw Gim Roda around the paddock. So it does show just how closely involved KRT were and the ProVec racing with uh, the Suzuka project. And it made a massive difference. What do you, how do I say this? Do you attribute Team Green's kind of step up this year to Johnny being a part of the team and, and his ability to set fast laps? Is it the KRT guys coming over and, and having a maybe a different operation or a different strategy? Is it is it Pariba? Is is it all the above? Where do you where do you put that factor down to? Well, one thing that you can look at is HRC when they came in to do Suzuka, every single person in that uh, in that garage was Japanese. A lot of them were working solely on the Suzuka project. Yamaha, they worked solely on the Suzuka project. Team Green was just, who's the best Kawasaki team in the world? All right, it's the team that's winning the World Superbike Championship. Let's just bring in some of those guys. And uh, that was one of the key differences was that for Kawasaki, they just looked at what's the best option for us to be able to be as competitive as possible in this race. The easiest option is bring in the guy that's winning World Superbike Championship, bring in the guy that's shown himself to be just able to to get a bit more from a Kawasaki than anyone else. Jonathan Ray came across, he brought his crew chief with him, he brought his team with him. And uh, when you put in Leon Haslam into that mix as well, Haslam's a great endurance rider. He's won at Suzuka three times, as we said, the podium man the last two years for Kawasaki. That's a really strong lineup. And uh, they'd Watanabe on the bike as well. And uh, by all accounts, Watanabe really strong in the West but obviously not at the same level as Jonathan Ray and Leon Haslam. Yeah, it kind of gets me this, um, I feel like I always bring up other sport analogies when I'm talking to you about motorcycles, but it, it, I got this like Phil Jackson thing in my head where you kind of bring in um, like team competency or, or the, the team that's already functioning at a high level as a team and the value that that has when you have mechanics and engineers and riders who have a shorthand already established, who already have a working trust and a knowledge with each other and a comfortability with each other. Whereas if you just try to throw in, hey, this is my top engineer from from you know the factory, and this is my top rider from this series, and this is my mechanic from a different series, but he's really good too, where you know, on paper it looks like it has like all the things that that should succeed, but because that they've never worked together as a team, they're missing that final little bump that maybe that's the difference that that team green brings to the recipe that that honda certainly didn't have and yamaha has been developing over the last few years is that fair to say yeah i think it is fair to say jensen i think when 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 you you look at uh when you look at uh, any any successful sports team it's easy to be successful if you've got one great guy and to further the the basketball analogy with with Phil Jackson, you can look at whether it's LeBron, whether at, at with uh, Cleveland, whether it's you know Michael Jordan at the Bulls. Those teams were always going to be successful because they have the best player, a, a, a generational player. Just like Kawasaki were always going to be successful because they've got the guy that's going to rewrite the World Superbike Records book. If you've got Jonathan Ray on your bike, you're going to be competitive. But how are you going to be more competitive? How are you going to give yourself the best chance of winning? It's by putting in complementary pieces around them. And those complementary pieces, they can be 
just as good or almost as good as that top talent. And that's where, like, if you look at uh, you know the last few years in the NBA, it's it's all been about teams being able to bring together a collection of stars. Whether that started in in uh, with the Lakers fifteen years ago or, or whatever, you know, it was all about being able to bring in you know as many top guys together as you can, and hopefully being able to keep as much ego out of it as possible. Kawasaki's done a pretty good job of that with Team Green this week. We didn't really hear too much dissension from, you know, whether it was Haslam being a little bit slower than Jonathan Ray in terms of his outright pace or, you know, Watanabe not quite uh, being able to get on the same level of consistency as the others. You know, they did a good job of keeping a lid on all that and, and keeping that, if there was tension, keeping it in-house. They did a really good job of making sure that they were working together. But uh, ultimately, by the end of the race, it was quite interesting just to just to look at the body language of some of the people from within Kawasaki. When you talk to them, they're all talking about next year, we want to come back, we know what to do, we're going to be stronger next year. But when you looked at Jonathan Ray, he just looked like a man that uh, he just wanted to be anywhere other than where he was because he's not used to being beaten. You know, and uh, no, yeah. when, when he was talking in the press conference, you know, he said all the right things. But uh, you could see he just wanted to get out of there. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't disagree with you on that. Uh, I want to talk about the race in a second, but let's finish up the qualifying really quick because we saw Team Green obviously light the scoreboard on fire. Honda slipping in the second spot, which I thought was pretty impressive, especially for all the talk before in the week about how they didn't quite have the same pace as, as Yamaha and Kawasaki. Uh, then, then Yamaha comes in. Uh, rounds out the top three and then you see the Musashi team the Musashi Honda team which is one of the Suzuka specialty teams here that's got you know quite a winning history sneaking into fourth ahead of Yoshimura Suzuki which I I feel like is ironic in a sort of way or or maybe it's just a great uh, marker on you know Yoshimura or uh, sorry on Suzuki's quote-unquote factory effort it's not quite factory like like it is when we talk about uh, Honda Kawasaki and Yamaha is it yeah, the pace of the Kawasaki in qualifying was really impressive because we had a big storm just before uh, that morning and uh, washed away all of the all of the rubber. So we didn't get quite down to the same pace that we saw during qualifying on Friday from Jonathan Ray, where he did a two hundred five one, got down to a two hundred five four. But uh, we didn't really get to see exactly what Yamaha could do either because they'd made the changes to their bike settings and. Uh, the riders went into that 40-minute session not really knowing what to expect. Weather was a big issue, so the organizers changed the qualifying format. It went from being the 40-minute shootout. It went from being the top 10 shootout to a 40-minute free-for-all. So that changed the the nature of the session as well. Uh, the number 11 Kawasaki got the most laps in. It got 16 laps in during that session. So if you look at it, it's a two-minute five-second lap. They spent probably the best part of 35 minutes out on track. So that's very different to, you know, Jonathan Ray or Leon Haslam having two minutes to set their lap time. They instead sure. had plenty of time to be able to get themselves up to speed and get themselves ready. Same for Honda with Nakagami. And uh, maybe, you know, we didn't quite get to see what everyone's ultimate... Uh, we got to see what their, what, their, what their pace was like, but maybe not uh, exactly what we could see from the Yamaha in terms of this is exactly what they can do just because they've made such a big change. Yoshimura was interesting because they were you know, 1.2 seconds off the pace, but they had a crash during the qualifying session as well. Suda crashed right. in the, I'd say, about 15 minutes into the session. 
So Yoshimura only managed to complete uh, a handful of laps and with uh, Bradley Race having the fastest time. So we didn't really get to see everything that they could uh, they could do. But uh, talking to the Yoshimura team, talking to the riders, they did say the same thing. We don't have to pace the Kawasaki and Honda, but maybe we can fight with the... Oh, sorry, we don't have the pace of the Kawasaki and the Yamaha, but maybe we can fight with Honda over the course of the race. And we saw realistically Honda were you know a lap lap and a half two laps down on the race winners during the race that's probably where Yoshimura are right now as well yeah no I think that's fair and it's, it, and it's good to bring up the fact that they they crashed because I was actually surprised to see um to see the result and where they ended up on the timesheet despite that because it, yeah it was fairly early into the session and the times that, that Bradley Ray put down, they, they held up quite well, which I think is, is a testament in a way to that team and the, and the effort they're putting in. I think Bradley Ray was actually one of the biggest surprises of the week as well. He was fast, whether it was in one lap, whether it was in the race. And uh, you know, Yoshimura actually got him to finish the race as well. And that's always a really big sign of what the team thinks of their riders. Who gets to finish the stint? That's typically, you know, one of the big honors of Suzuka. And uh, for uh, Yoshimura to say to Bradley Ray, you know, I I think Brad's 20 years of age, to say to a 20-year-old guy, you know, we're going to trust you at the night stint to finish this race really, you know, did show a lot about uh, the job that he's done this week. I think to give him a nod and say, hey, you're the one that's going to bring it home, that there's a lot of trust that goes into it, especially as uh, the sun sets and the conditions start changing pretty rapidly. Yeah, and it is a big challenge for the riders once that sun does come down and, and we go into full darkness because talking to PJ about it, he said that uh, there's a lot of times whenever you come through traffic and you're not sure if it's you know two bikes or three bikes because you can't actually see it. You're only judging it by maybe taillights or you know something that you're seeing as a flash in front of you. Jonathan Ray said that uh, a lot of the time you peel into corners and you're a little bit too early and then suddenly you find yourself up on top of a curb. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the final hour of the race. And uh, for Bradley Ray to be given that uh, that honor to finish the race, does say an awful lot about the job that he's been doing this year. Talking about PJ Jacobson and, and switching to the race, you know, getting the nod kind of at the last minute to, to bump up to the, the factory team because of uh, Leon Camier's um, accident during, uh, during the World Superbike offseason. Uh, big deal for the American. How do you think he did on, on I was going to say the world stage. He was already going to be on the world stage, but on the factory stage, I think there's a lot more of a spotlight when you're in the uh, the full factory Team HRC outfit than than one of the uh, the satellite bikes, as it were. I think PJ was in a, a bit of a, a thankless situation this week because he comes into a team to replace Leon Camier. Camier would have been the team leader. He had a crash during the final couple of days of testing. And uh, he was ruled out of the race. And uh, for Jacobson, he comes in last minute replacement for Camier. And he comes in as a teammate to two HRC contracted riders, two Japanese riders on a full Japanese team. And uh, it's, you know, it's always going to be difficult. There's going to be certain things to get lost in translation. I was down in the pit box a couple of times just to just to look in and see what was going on. And you'd see a debrief going on where Nakagami and Takahashi, the two riders, were sitting side by side with all of the engineers surrounding them and PJ just on the outside, you know, because everyone's in there speaking Japanese and, uh, you know, the American just, he waits his turn and then gets to say what he wants to say. And that's a big challenge for, for riders as well. 
because everyone knows that uh, you know a happy rider is a fast rider, and the easiest way to make a rider happy is to make them feel like the center of the earth. And hmm. you know, PJ, he knew going into the race that he wasn't going to be at that center of attention. So it was about trying to manage his his expectations, and I thought he did a good job. I thought that uh, considering he had such limited running this weekend, I think he'd probably done. I think the longest uh, he the longest uh, the most amount of miles that he did during a practice session was about twenty laps. So, you know, he had a couple of sessions where he didn't really get out. He had, you know, in the race he got out for one stint, and it was whenever it was absolutely drenched. He had never raced at Suzuka in the wet before hadn't used Bridgestone tyres in the wet before either. So he had this huge learning experience and Honda was in the lead of the race whenever he took over the bike. So he's under pressure not to make a mistake anyway. And then that's exaggerated by the fact that you're the race leader. So I thought PJ did a really good job. At the end of the day, the team finished second. So you know they can come away pretty pleased with how it went. And uh, hopefully for PJ, it'll uh, keep him in good graces with Honda as well for next year. Two things there. Uh, do do you think Honda actually was happy coming in second this year? Because I don't feel like that's that's the case at all. I feel like they came in. the The mantra literally was win at all costs. So I feel like second second to them is first loser. Well, let me let me correct it. Um, Honda won't be happy to have come in second place, but to win this race was an unrealistic goal for Honda as well. Their bike isn't isn't a match to the Yamaha. In terms of consistency over eight hours, it's not a match to Kawasaki in terms of outright pace. They did a really good job of managing their strategy, but and you know reacting in the you know hours two to eight to what was happening around them. But realistically, Honda made two stops less, so they spent. I'm just looking at the numbers now. They spent uh, just under two minutes less in the pits, which is a full lap less in the pits. They finished 30 seconds behind Yamaha. That was 90 minutes behind the safety car. You know, if you look at it realistically, they're finishing two laps down. So finishing second, that's as good as they're that's as good as they were ever going to do in this race. Do you feel like the? Um, I kind of want to come back to PJ, but you brought up the safety car. Do you feel like the safety car coming out hurt or helped Honda? Uh, I definitely think it helped Honda because in the first hour. Takahashi makes a great start. He opens a lead. He probably had a... I was at trackside, so I don't know the exact distances, but he probably had a five-second lead at one stage. And Gintoli was the first rider to pit. Then Yamaha pitted a lap later, Kawasaki a lap later, and Honda stayed out. And you're standing there, and you know part of endurance racing is sticking to your guns. Jonathan Ray talks about it during the, the, uh, the press conference at the end of the race is that uh, you've got to stick to your strategy. You work to the pit board and you do what you're told. Sometimes you've got to stick to your own to your own ambitions as well. And Honda should have pitted. They should have just adapted to what was happening around them. They didn't. And they dropped down the order in that uh, in those early stages. And when you look at the gaps between you know the Yamaha and the Honda throughout the race, it did just come down to the, the strategy decision in that opening hour because Honda lost 20 seconds in the opening hour just by staying in, staying out on track on a wet, uh, on a, on a wet tire on a dry track for, you know, probably six laps too long just so that they were able to get to the end of their stint. It looked like any chance that Honda had of being able to win this race was gone because they needed to be faultless and have luck play into their hands as well. And as, you know, as the race progressed, Honda ended up 
you know, they'd fall they'd fall back to I think twenty seconds back at the end of the second hour, so they lost another second in the second hour. A safety car came out so they were able to close the gap back up to um to the Kawasaki's and Yamaha's in the third hour. By the time the fourth hour came out, uh, they were a lap behind Yamaha. But this is where their strategy actually paid off because suddenly um, safety cars played to their hand and they pitted at the right time. And having gone that little bit longer than everyone else in the first hour, suddenly they were able to get away with making two stops less through the race. So you know, there was some luck for Honda during the course of the race, but you know, did they make the right calls at all times? I wouldn't have thought so. But as I said, they could have finished two laps behind Yamaha, and instead they finished you know thirty seconds behind Yamaha. So I I think that they got everything they could from this race. <laughs> interesting. What was quite interesting with um, Honda as well, actually, just looking at the the pit times. For each of the of the leading crews, Honda on average was about a second a, a second a pit stop faster than Yamaha as well, and that included a fast pit stop at the end of the race for Yamaha just to give a, a, a splash of fuel to Alex Lowe's. So that did show just one of the strengths for Honda. If you're making eight eight seconds up through the course of the race, if you don't have safety cars and things like that, it's free time that you're making up. And uh, they were able to to do that this year. So that could be something that, that plays a role in next year's race. Yeah, no, I think certainly. I think we saw an interesting tipping point in the strategies in terms of uh, fuel consumptions and lap times. Um, we know the Honda isn't the, the fastest bike on the production level. It definitely struggles on the racing side. Um, but maybe that plays advantage because they're not eating up as much fuel too. And they can eke out a couple more laps each stint or, or, or whatever that it, that delta is and be able to cut out a, a pit stop, which, you know, as you said, that, that's a minute of time in the pits. And if you can get your pit times really quick, that's that's even more, uh, you know, icing on the cake for you. Yeah, and that's the... I don't know. That That's the key thing. It's about being able to... There's, there's plenty of ways to skin a cat in endurance racing. And, uh, you know, is it about being ultimately the fastest team out there? Is it about being able to go an extra lap each stint is it about being able to have three riders that are all at similar pace is it about you know trying to to go fast at the start and open a gap and manage a gap is it strategy is it speed you know that's what makes endurance racing great suzuka is a sprint race there's no two ways about it anymore you know this is pretty much an eight hour long superbike race and uh, teams with that being the case have to make their decisions and uh, I remember I was talking to Yoshimura about it last year and uh, they had uh, you know a really strong qualifying performance but they crashed on the second lap of the race and the race was run and I was then talking to the Yoshi team after the race and the one thing that they said was we don't care about any other race so we build our bike so that it's fast here at Suzuka for eight hours the engine can run at full power for eight hours we don't care about crash damage because if we crash, we're not going to win anyway. So they don't have, huh. you know, all the same level of, you know, how quickly you can change parts that, you know, a full-time endurance world championship team will have. You know, if you're racing a 24-hour race, you might need to be able to, you know, change pretty much anything on the bike within, you know, a couple of minutes in case you have a crash. If you're Yoshimura or if you're 
HRC or if you're a Yamaha factory racing, you don't really care too much about finishing down the order. You're trying to win the race. So there are, you know, the uh, the compromises that you typically have in endurance racing don't really apply to those teams as well. So there's, there's loads of decisions that go in away from the race week and away from you know, just the, the testing as well that teams have to make their decisions on how they're going to approach the race. Yeah, no, I think that's a really uh, important distinction to make, especially between the, the Suzuka specials and the uh, EWC bikes. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, for the factory Yamaha boys, I mean, it's only eight-hour races, but or it's only eight hours of racing, but still two riders to, to do all that in, that's got to be taxing. Lo- losing Nakas- uh, Nakasuga um, for the factory Yamaha team, that that has to be tough you know what did Lowe's and Vandermark think about that uh, well the two boys looked absolutely fresh as the daisy after the race so physically really yeah physically it, it's it's a big ask physically for the riders because everyone knows how tough Suzuka is it's hot it's humid um, you know maybe having an hour and a half of safety cars helps that as well for Yamaha but it's also an sure. hour and a half where you know you're just cruising around on a hot bike in hot conditions and you know it that's tough and that that's draining as well for a rider but for the likes of Lowe's, van der mark ray haslam you know you go up and down all of these top riders haslam did five six hours last year on his own so all of these guys physically they can they can do it that's what they train for that's what they're out running miles for that's what they're cycling for that's what they're you know spending all the time in the gym for but uh, it's it's the mental side of it that's a big challenge because you have to get back on that bike. And for Yamaha, they weren't going to double stint yesterday. It was you do one hour, I do the next hour. You know, I think the only time where they didn't really make changes were when Vandermark stayed on the bike when it switched from wet tires to slick tires at the start of the race, and then when Lowe's came in for the the quick pit stop at the end of the race as well. So by and large, Yamaha had a strategy where they were just going to go single stints for all of their riders and just uh, work their way through the race. So it's all those kind of factors that go into it. And for a rider, they jump off the bike, you know, their body temperature soars, and uh, they try and get themselves cooled down. They try and get something to eat. They try and do all these things. Suddenly, if you only have an hour to get yourself ready to go back out again, even if it's just something as simple as you know getting suits dried, getting you know gloves, anything like that, maybe you know a, a new helmet, anything like that. Suddenly, all of that time just goes from two hours to one hour, and it's all condensed. So you come out, you jump into the cool pool, you come back out of that. You get, you might get something to eat. Uh, you might get a massage, you get yourself ready to go out again, and, and it's it's non-stop. I remember Matt Oxley was talking about it whenever he raced here at Suzuka, was that um, you know your, your body goes to jelly very quickly just because you're just trying to get yourself back out there to, to get back out on track. And the teams do everything they can to make sure that you're able to get back out there. But uh, you know it is tough for the riders mentally more so than physically yeah that's always what i hear from riders is just how uh how difficult it is and i think the the heat of suzuka obviously plays a, a big portion of it um i'm not sure how much the rain changes that because i could see it kind of going both ways well the rain's a strange one because obviously once you're out on track you're the riders their concentration is so high even more so than normal because they know that any mistake can be really crucial and uh you know i, I was down on the grid i was shooting down on the grid and 
I've never seen so many nervous faces down on the grid from top mm. riders that know how good they are. You know, like whether like Vandermark was a good example. If you look at some of the pictures from Vandermark down on the grid, I've never seen Mikey where he's not smiling. I've never seen him where you could see how anxious he was. The rain started to come in twenty minutes before the start of the race. Do you start the race on slick tires? You know, that's a discussion that's happening, and then suddenly there's a monumental downpour, and then you know you're starting on wet tires, but then you also know that you've got to make sure that you're at the front of this, you know, sixty bike train on the run down in towards turn one. You've got to make sure that you're not making a mistake in the opening ten laps of the race, and then you've got to manage when you change onto the dry tires, you've got to make sure that when you do change onto the slicks, that you don't hit a wet patch. Randy Depunier hit a wet patch. He ended up splitting his one of his fingers open. He's going back to France for surgery on it. Could lose a finger just because he hit a wet patch. Suddenly he crashes. Every rider is thinking the same thing. That could be me. So the pressure just continuously mounts all the way. When you're down on the grid, you're looking at uh, riders trying to keep their helmets dry, keep their gloves dry, putting them under umbrellas on the grid, all these different things. Jonathan Ray was running around like a madman trying to make sure Leon Haslam had his helmet underneath an umbrella. You know, there's all these factors that go into it. Down at the under-21 Yamaha, he had Alex Lowe's trying to figure out what the rain was doing so that he could talk to the team because you could see how anxious Vandermark was. So suddenly, you know, the... The full team dynamics really do come into effect. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, obviously, we saw it pay off for for Yamaha. They get their fourth victory in a row. Um, Red Bull Honda comes in second, um, which we we've discussed how that may or may not be a good result for them uh, in their eyes. Uh, what happened with Kawasaki though? Because things looked really good from the start. And then things just kind of went uh, sideways as the race went on. Well, I have to say, if anyone didn't look at the race, just watch the first two, two and a half hours of this race because this was superbike racing at its best. It was endurance racing at its best. It was probably the best advertisement that you'll see for World Superbikes because Ray and Vandermark were just going toe-to-toe. Yeah, and if I can if I can plug uh, my site real quickly, Steve, um, on the Asphalt and Rubber Facebook page, we actually... Um, have a posting. Someone did a Facebook live. I think it was the Thai Honda team of the <laughs> of the Thai stream. So it's um, completely incomprehensible if you don't speak the Thai language. But you can at least see the racing for I think the first hour and a half uh, is up on there. And it, like you said, it is absolutely worth watching because that's that's closed circuit racing. That's not endurance racing. Yeah, I was I was then at turn two when the riders changed on to slick tires. And I started just, I was walking my way back up towards, you know, turn three, four, five. And suddenly I, I, I just saw that like Vandermark and, um, and Johnny Ray were just going absolutely toe to toe. And, uh, you know, if, if Ray stretched the gap of a half a second one lap, Vandermark was pulling back seven tenths the next lap. And, you know, that gap was just yo-yoing from, you know, anything from a second to a thousand of a second. And, uh, you know, we saw changes of the lead. We saw each of them really attacking each other. And I was just working back from turns two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten through the course of that stint. It was a 26, 27 lap stint. And uh, I was just working all the way back along the track because I, as, as I was watching, I was thinking, you know what? I really want to have a full sequence of 
what these guys were doing corner to corner through this race because you're looking at a trackside and you're thinking this is something special and uh, I know yeah. from like my phone was was lighting up with uh, WhatsApp messages from people just saying like Jesus this is this is great racing and it really was and you know it showed once again like what we've seen in World Superbikes this year that uh, when riders get the chance to fight with Ray on a level field you know whether it was Van der Mark doing it at Donington whether it was Aston where he could have won as well you know whether it was you know how many other examples there's been there's been a ton of examples this year and you know when they get the chance to go toe-to-toe with Jonathan Red they're not afraid to fight with him they're not afraid to throw the bike down the inside but what was really interesting was um talking to some of the riders after the race a lot of them were quite critical of some of Ray's moves being uh, quite aggressive as well but uh, I haven't actually seen I haven't seen the race myself so it's uh, just just hearsay from me from what people have said to me but uh, I know from where I was standing on trackside I didn't see anything from Ray or Van der Mark in terms of making overtaking moves on each other but it was definitely a big talking point after the race yeah I think aggressive would be a good way of describing it because ultimately what ended up happening we see Jonathan Ray sliding down the tarmac um, in the Kawasaki bike on its side and that kind of seemed to be the start of their unraveling well, the start of the unraveling was they actually ran out of fuel a little bit before that as well, and that cost them some time, came into the pits, they'd lost a bit of ground to Yamaha, then it started to spit with rain, and uh, if this had been a World Superbike race, it's up to the rider to come into the pits, and uh, Ray said that he would have just jumped straight into the pits, and he would have made a change of tyres. Instead, he was working towards what the pit board was saying for him to do, which was stay out on track and just try and get to the end of the stint. In endurance racing, the most important thing is to be able to get to the end of your stint so that you're able to stay on the optimum strategy. And unfortunately for Jonathan Ray, instead of staying on the optimum strategy, he was on the ground because he had a big high side. He said that he was off the gas and suddenly the rear end just came around on him and uh, it just spat, spat him out over the top. Do you think this is the, the start of something big for Kawasaki? Obviously, I think they have a lot to prove for next year. Do you think they'll keep the, the intensity and the pressure up or... Was this kind of the their shot at glory, and now that they've they podiumed, but you know they weren't the front front team, and maybe this project has lost its momentum? Where do you see that going? How do you think? How do you see that shaping out? The one thing that uh, you know history always shows us about people that are successful, they don't like being beaten. And Kawasaki are successful in World Superbikes. Jonathan Ray is successful in World Superbikes. They don't like being beaten. They're not used to being beaten. They'll want to come back here next year and uh, really take the fight and take the win. So I'd be absolutely shocked if they're not back next year. Mm, uh, I would be too. I think the Suzuka race is the better for it if they are. Uh, hopefully we can see uh, other teams step it up and, and bring in their top riders, uh, maybe from the Grand Prix classes. I know that's always a bit of an ask, but... Uh, this feels like we're starting another golden era for the Suzuka 8 Hours, and I really am I'm jazzed to see that. Yeah, and there was a buzz around having Jonathan Ray here this weekend. He is you know, a three-time world champion, well on the way to winning a fourth championship. He's broken every record in Superbikes, really, at this stage. And uh, to have him here at Suzuka, it meant something extra for the race. And uh, you would hope that... Uh, you know, the buzz that was generated from him being here, hopefully it means that uh, 
you know, Honda next year. They put some pressure on Marquez, Lorenzo, Crutch though, and uh, you know a couple of other riders to try and come here next year. You look at uh, Suzuki, maybe they put some pressure on Alex Rins to come here on a, on a Yashimura bike. You know, there's 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 definitely going to be a tipping point where we get those GP riders back here at Suzuka. Last year we had Jack Miller, the year before we had Paul Spagaro, the year before that it was a Spagaro and Miller and uh, Spagaro and Smith. So, you know, MotoGP with the calendar the way it is this year didn't really fall into play to come to Suzuka, but hopefully for next year it uh, can make a difference. There is actually a change in the calendar for next year as well for Suzuka. Instead of it being the Sunday race, it'll actually be a Saturday race. So maybe that makes it a, li- a little bit easier for some of the Europeans as well. Hmm. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. All right, Steve, I think that just about does it for uh, for you and I talking about the 2018 Suzuka 8-hour. Uh, it's been interesting having a chat with you. This has obviously been uh, a great race weekend uh, for the endurance racing series and for the Suzuka in general. Um, I think I said it earlier in the show, it feels like we're in kind of a golden age of Suzuka again, and I'm going to have to start putting the race on my calendar for 2019, you know, start making the making choices on where I'm going to fly to next year. And Suzuki's definitely got to be at the top of the list for me. Yeah, well, you're, you're taking Macau off the box this year, Jensen, so you might as well get Suzuka next year. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, I'm just working my way around. But, um, you know, we appreciate all the hard work you're putting in this week. Uh, Suzuka's not an easy race to cover. Any any race that's eight hours or longer is, is a beast. Getting there is not easy. The heat, the humidity, the typhoon. Um, you definitely had a lot to overcome. So I think on behalf of the entire Paddock Pass podcast crew, I thank you for your diligent work, sir. Well, I'll tell you one thing, actually, Jensen, just about the typhoon. So obviously at the end of every day over the course of any race weekend, you're always tired. You're always, you're always keen to get back to the hotel, get something to eat, get yourself uh, off to bed and get like, you know, you know, a few hours sleep before you have to get up to, to go again the next morning. And the typhoon hit on Saturday night. So as I was leaving the paddock, you see everyone taking down all their hospitality units. Anything that could be tied down was being tied down. Anything that could be taken away was being taken away. So you knew that a big storm was coming. But uh, being, being an Irishman, you're there like, it'll you know, be a bit windy. It'll be fine. And uh, get back to the hotel. It was lovely and calm. So I, I go, down to, go down to the 7-Eleven just to pick up you know, a bottle of water just just for just for the evening, just in case there's nothing in the hotel. So come back, go down to the shop, suddenly get out of the car, absolute downpour of rain, and you're thinking, oh, maybe maybe the typhoon's starting. Drive back to the hotel, it's literally only about five minutes away. Get into the hotel, could barely open the door of the car because it was that windy. Get into the hotel, and uh, you know, you're setting up to go to bed. Suddenly the power cuts out. And you're thinking, oh, geez, it's windy, it's noisy, it's, you know, it's bad outside. And then suddenly the power cuts out and you're thinking, oh, well, that's okay. Maybe it'll actually be nice and dark now. But instead, every emergency light in the hotel comes on. (laughs) So it's brighter than if you're, you know, in in the middle of Qatar during the race. And uh, suddenly you're getting, you know, half an hour's sleep. Power comes back at uh, five o'clock in the morning, and every TV in the hotel goes off. So suddenly you're, you know, you're woken up by this massive noise, and then you're thinking, oh, "I better try and get back to sleep." And then the alarm goes off at six thirty for you to get up to go to the race. So you know, an endurance race, Suzuka, it's always tough. But uh, I definitely could have done with more than probably about an hour's kip on Saturday night. Well, you're the true hero of the of the whole racing uh, 
weekend than aren't you I wouldn't go that far, but uh, I, I'll, I'll, ta- I'll take whatever I'm offered. All right, fair enough, sir. Um, before we head out, I want to remind the listeners to make sure they're following us on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. On Twitter, our handle is paddockpasspod. Whatever app or website or carrier pigeon that you listen to us on, please, 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 please leave us a rating and review. I can't stress that enough. Uh, the rating systems are so crazy on these uh, different sites and different uh, platforms. And uh, until next time, Steve, uh, good talk, and we'll see you out there. Yeah, thanks very much, Jensen. Good talk to you again.